Exodus chapter 2 gives us explanatory details. How did Moses survive in spite of Pharaoh's policy of infanticide of all male babies? How did he end up in Midian? And so forth. It answers a lot of our questions. And in some ways, in that sense, it's merely a bridge in the narration of the larger narrative. It gets us actually 80 years chronologically along the retelling of this story. From the time Moses is born to the time when he goes out and kills the Egyptian is 40 years. And then he runs and he's 40 years in Midian before Exodus chapter 3 where God appears to him in the burning bush and sends him back. So chapter 2 covers 80 years. So in that sense it's a bridge in the larger narrative. And though we wouldn't know it yet as first-time readers of Exodus, if you, say, for example, were raised in an Islamic country and came across a copy of the Bible and picked it up and started reading from Genesis chapter 1, and it was your first time reading through Genesis or Exodus, you wouldn't necessarily know. Well, I guess if it was an Islamic country, you may. Let me make a different example. If it was a Hindu country, you may not. You you guys understand what I mean. If it was your first time reading through, you might not know that Moses is the deliverer, the rescuer of the people of Israel. I think most of us, if not all of us in this room, already know that. But you wouldn't know if this was your first time through. But we have to realize that the original readers would already know that Moses was their deliverer. Because Moses himself penned this narrative after the exodus from Egypt, before the children of Israel went into the promised land. And so, for them, the first readers, Exodus 2 was an introduction to their Savior. They would have read it, and the the word Moses would have been like, oh, the guy who leads us, the guy who helped us get out of Egypt. Yeah, we know him. Oh, so this is how he was... So it serves as a bridge in the narrative. It serves as an introduction to their Savior. That's kind of at a basic level what this passage is doing. But here is a series of questions for your consideration as we look at this text a little bit more deeply. Did God find a man in Midian who had miraculously survived a campaign of infanticide while yet a baby in Egypt, who happened to be a child of Israel, but also happened to be familiar with Egyptian customs due to having happened to be raised in the household of Pharaoh, who was mighty in word and deed, and yet had happened to come to an end of self-reliance. And did God stumble upon this man and consider Moses a lucky find, the way that we might consider ourselves lucky to find a $50 bill on a busy sidewalk with no way of identifying the owner and forced to pocket it ourselves. (laughs) Did God did God simply find Moses in Midian, a man who happened to be especially well suited to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? Did God consider himself lucky that now he found this man that he could use to rescue his people? I think the answer to that is obvious. 
I hope by now, after listening to my preaching for two years, that the answer is obvious. No, God did not just happen to find this man. Of course not. The alternative is that God prepared Moses for his life's work. God prepared Moses for his life's work so that when Moses was 80 years old, he was well suited to be the deliverer, but not by accident. It was on purpose. God had providentially arranged the circumstances of Moses' life such that at 80 years old he would be well suited to be the deliverer of his people. To begin with, Moses was a Levite. Look at Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Were Moses not a Levite, how could he function as the one who speaks to God on behalf of the people? And on behalf of God to the people? How could he fulfill this priestly function given that later in Exodus and the other books of the Torah, the priesthood of Israel is relegated to the Levites? Would it not seem strange if Moses had all these rules about only the Levites can do this and everybody was like, but wait a second, you're not a Levite. Next, Moses was preserved in a most remarkable way as a baby born at a time when all newborn males were to be killed. Douglas Stewart takes the view, which I had actually never considered before, studying this week, that Moses' mother, Jochebed, as she's introduced to us in later chapters, hides Moses in the reeds during the daytime only in order to avoid drawing attention to him when Egyptians are around, but brings him home at night. In other words, I had always understood that she had basically put him in a little boat and hoped and prayed for the best and sent him off. But Stewart's view is actually that at night, she would be fine to have Moses around. There would be the cry of little babies and huts and houses all over the place. And the Egyptians were not likely coming in every time a baby cried in the night to inspect what was going on. But during the daytime, the Egyptians would be around and there would be a lot more attention and it would be a lot harder to hide a baby male. And so during the daytime, she put him out by the reeds where it was less likely for the Egyptians to go and then she'd bring him home at convenient times. Interesting. I don't know. Most other commentators, in fact, I had never heard that view. Most other commentators take the view that Jochebed did simply put him in the reeds and hope and pray for the best. And that was turning him out from the home at a point when he was no longer, she no longer deemed it viable to keep him at home. Whatever the case, whatever her motives, whatever her intentions, who would have predicted that Pharaoh's daughter would find him. Now Pharaoh most likely had over a hundred daughters. But still, a hundred out of however many the population of Egypt is, is still not very good odds. Who would have predicted that Pharaoh's daughter would find him? That his mother would be hired as Moses' wet nurse? And that after being nursed from infancy to toddlerhood and childhood by his very own biological mother, Moses would then be placed into Pharaoh's household. 
Surely this is God's handiwork. God created Moses mighty in word and deed, as Stephen the deacon describes him many centuries later in Acts chapter 7. Perhaps Moses' might was a concession to the weakness of the Israelites' faith. These weren't exactly the most pious of human history whom God brought out of Egypt. Perhaps God conceded to give them a leader who actually was mighty, who actually was big and strong, conceding to their weakness, giving them a man who looked like he was worth following. In verse 12, he strikes down an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrews. Doubtless that Egyptian was himself a strong man. Moses was not a soft man from Pharaoh's palace who couldn't handle himself in a fight with an Egyptian foreman. He killed the man and buried him in the sand. Then, in verse 17, Moses is on the run from Egypt to Midian and he single-handedly chases away a bunch of shepherds from a well in a foreign land. So these guys come to water their sheep and there's many of them and one of Moses. And Moses says, "Uh uh-uh, ladies first. And the shepherds either willingly or unwillingly acquiesce. So either there's the intimidation factor of if any of you wants to try to water his sheep, you've got to go through me first. And they just back off and say, okay, let the ladies go. Or they literally say, well, who are you? And Moses says, this is who I am. (laughs) Physically chases them away. In any case, Moses, it seems, was strong and forceful. And yet, Moses was compassionate. Look at the care he has for his people, although misguided. Verse 11, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So who does Moses identify with? The slave class. These are my people. He goes out and he is incensed. He's enraged by what he sees. And he kills the Egyptian man. He sides with the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. This is the sort of man that Moses is. He has no compelling human reason to do so. From the safety and the privilege of Pharaoh's palace, there's no human reason for him to stick his neck out. But this is the sort of man that he is. Though he's strong and forceful, he's a man who uses his strength for good. Or at least I should say intends to use his strength for good. Murdering an Egyptian and burying him in the sand is not actually good. But Moses' intention was to be a rescuer of his people. As Stephen the deacon also tells us in Acts chapter 7. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. When he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. This was what Moses was trying to do. He acted self-consciously as a rescuer. And he does so again in verse 17, acting to rescue the daughters of Midian, whose flocks needed water from the selfish shepherds who would not otherwise make room for them at the well. It seems that maybe the women had to wait sort of in the distance until the shepherds were all done and then they could go because their father says, how is it that you have come home so soon today? Implying that they were normally later. So perhaps... They basically just had to wait 
at least to water their flocks, if not to avoid harassment and mistreatment at the well from these blue-collar shepherds gathered around seven women. You may imagine the sort of things that could transpire under similar circumstances. So God had fashioned Moses into a strong and yet compassionate man. God had caused Moses to be born a child of Israel, but raised in the household of Pharaoh. And so familiar with the ways of the Egyptians. And God has brought him, by verse 22, to an end of self-reliance. Look at verse 22. I have been, or I have become, a sojourner in a foreign land. The sense of this is, though brought up in a high position in the household of Pharaoh, thinking consciously of myself and expecting myself to be the deliverer of my people, the Israelites, I have failed in that. I have been exiled to a foreign land, and here I am, a mere sojourner. I have been reduced to being a sojourner in a foreign land. This understanding is confirmed to be correct when we read Exodus 3 and see that Moses is not self-confident, nor is he desirous to return to Egypt. So when he calls himself a sojourner in a foreign land, it's not because he's longing to go back to Egypt. It's not because he's saying, I'm a sojourner for now, but soon I'll be a rescuer. He's basically saying, I had hoped and thought that my life would turn out one way, but it's turned out another. I supposed that my brothers would understand that God was giving salvation by my hand. But, alas, I've been misunderstood. I've been unsuccessful in what I was trying to do. I've been chased out of Egypt. I have no friends in Pharaoh's household. And in fact, I have no friends among the Israelites, the children of Israel. Now I am a mere sojourner in a foreign land. By the end of chapter 2, Moses has been broken by a failed attempt to save his people. And by the resultant exile, he is experiencing in Midian. He is disillusioned and he has given up on being a rescuer. In other words, he is now prepared to be a mere instrument in God's hands. That God may get all the glory for the rescue that he is about to work through Moses, his servant. God is about to use this strong and compassionate man, born a child of Israel, but raised in Pharaoh's household, conversant with the Egyptian language and customs, who is no longer confident in his own abilities to deliver, but sees himself rightly, not more highly than he ought. God has providentially fit Moses for his life's work. So we see that this is not only a bridge narrative connecting us with the arrival of Israel's 12 sons in Egypt and then the 10 plagues in the Exodus. This is not only a bridge narrative, nor is this merely an introduction to Moses, the rescuer of Israel. This passage illustrates for us 
a principle of how God works in the lives of those whom He desires and intends to use. Which is, in fact, all of His people. There's a saying that God does not call the equipped, but God equips the called. This was the case with Moses, the Savior of God's Old Covenant people. And this is also the case with each one of us. Now you might say, well, this is a bit of a stretch. None of us are deliverers of a geopolitical state or an ethnic group or whatever. Are we really to see ourselves as Moses in this text? The answer to that latter question is no. I'm not calling you to see yourself as Moses in this text. But we're faced with two options. Either God works in the same way in your life as He worked in Moses' life, or He doesn't. Either God providentially prepared Moses for the good works which He had prepared beforehand for him to walk in, and He likewise providentially prepares you for the good works which He had prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Or God did so for Moses, but just leaves it to chance with you. And just looks down every now and then and sees what you bring to the table and then tries to find a little place where He can fit you in to His plan. You see, these are the only two options. Because it's either a principle that God is providentially preparing His people for the work that He's calling them to, or He's not. And Moses is an exceptional case. I would argue that, in fact, God is preparing each and every one of us for the work that He is calling us to do. It may not be marching up to the Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. In fact, for most of us, if not all of us, it will not be that. It might be, as Martin Luther said, making good shoes, or encouraging a brother or sister, or giving generously, or driving those without vehicles, or laboring in prayer with the extra time that you have on your hands, or whatever. But... God is either providentially preparing you for that which He is calling you to, or He's just leaving it to chance and seeing what happens. And the Scripture can't square with the latter. By way of example, I'm somewhat reticent to even say this because I'm not at all trying to draw attention to myself. I've shared this with many of you privately. But I was in Canada praying for a Reformed church to be planted in Barbados. Thinking, the Lord will send someone. I was settled. We owned our own home. I was pastoring there. I was praying that God would send a Reformed pastor to Barbados to undertake the work. And then I realized, I am praying for someone with my qualifications. And I'm praying for someone in my life situation who is providentially able to move 
and get residency status, if not already a native-born Barbadian. And I realized, well, here I am, already working as a pastor with Reformed biblical convictions, married to a Barbadian, which entitles me to citizenship, with experience in church planting, with experience even in as being a Pentecostal charismatic Christian, which is which gives me a measure of familiarity then with many of the other churches in Barbados and the religious mentality of many here and the Christian scene. I started to think to myself, well, maybe the Lord has been providentially preparing me for this work. Why wouldn't I myself go then? I came to believe that God has been preparing me my whole life for this work. He has been bringing me to a place where I was prepared to fill the role in front of me. I could not have done it in 2010 or 2012. I was not ready. But by 2017, when we had started this church, certain things had transpired which brought me to a place where I was ready to take on this responsibility. I hesitated even in saying this because I'm not trying to draw attention to myself or compare myself to Moses in any way or anything at all like that, but simply to make the point with a modern-day, real-life example that God does providentially use our circumstances. So when I was planting a church in Canada in conjunction with a number of other people and involved in that process, I was learning about church planting. When I was a Pentecostal charismatic Christian, I was learning about Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. As I was studying to be a pastor and pastoring in Canada, I was gaining valuable experience which would help me in this situation where I'm relatively isolated working as the only local officer of this church, gaining experience working in teams with other pastors, and so on and so forth. It just seems to me to be an example of the principle that I'm trying to outline here. I never thought I would be in Barbados. When Mel and I talked before we were married, and in the early years, it was not remotely in our plans to be in Barbados. But here we are. And so you see that even when we are not aware of what God is doing and how God is working and what He's forming in us, He is doing that. He is working things in us, preparing us, shaping us, fashioning us, giving us the life experiences that He wants us to have, putting us in the circumstances that He wants us to be in so that we may do the things that He has prepared beforehand for us to do, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Again, either God is providentially preparing each one of us for something, or He's not. And God has no plans whatsoever for you, and He's just basically just waking up and just seeing what you're up to today. Those are the only options. 
So I ask you, Christian, what has God been shaping you for? What has God been preparing you for? For whom has God burdened your heart? Particular individuals? Particular groups of people? Particular demographics of people? People in certain circumstances to whom you are maybe especially able to minister in some way? For what spiritual objective has God given you a passion? For what work, for what contribution to the body has God given you an aptitude? How has God used you in the past, spiritually speaking? In what area have you seen fruitfulness? In terms of some kind of ministry to others. My wife was doing a little exercise with my sons in homeschool recently. Talking to them about how our fingers were made for touching and feeling. There's more nerve endings in our our fingertips than in our elbows. And so the boys were to touch certain objects with their elbows. I think with a blindfold on if I'm not mistaken. And try to identify what the object was by touching it with their elbows. And then they had the chance to touch the very same objects with their fingertips. And of course they were much more readily able to identify the object when they touched with their fingertips. Because the hand has an aptitude for touching. The fingertips have an aptitude for touching in the way that the elbow doesn't. The elbow has aptitude for many other things. If I was trying to break a pane of glass out of a window to escape a burning building, I wouldn't start jabbing it with my fingertips. Not one, not two, not even all five. But I might give it an elbow. Our elbows were made for one thing, our fingertips were made for another. Is one part of the body more important than the other? Can the hand say to the eye, I have no need of you? Can the fingertip say to the elbow, I have no need of you? You understand that God has placed within a human body different parts, shaping each one for its function. Likewise, in the body of Christ, God is shaping each one of us has shaped, is shaping, and will continue to shape each one of us for the things in front of us. You may not be called to march up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. You may not be called to do this particular thing or that particular thing in the body of Christ. But no less, in your case... Then in Moses' case, is God actively at work shaping you and forming you to be the person that He would have you be with the experiences that He would want you to have, the knowledge base that He would desire you to have, the maturity level that He would desire you to have, and so on and so forth, so that you can do the good works which He prepared beforehand for you to walk in. 
Ephesians 2.10. God's not leaving it to chance. God didn't simply pull your name out of a hat and then pull a task, a good work out of a hat and randomly match you with what He would have you do. And then look down and say, well, it's unfortunate that I had prepared this for her to walk in because she's really not suitable for that. Or I had prepared this for him to walk in, but alas, he's not really suitable for that. What God has prepared beforehand for you to do, He will shape you to be ready to do when the right time comes. Many people take spiritual gift inventories or tests before they begin serving to try to figure out how they might serve and what they should do. And until they are sure what their spiritual gift is, they do nothing. And they, they just wait. But in some ways, it doesn't need to be so complicated. What needs are there in the body of Christ? And which of these needs has God prepared you to meet? In God's providence, which ones of those can you step into? Certainly not all of them. None of us can step into all of the needs of the body of Christ. God hasn't designed it that way. But which of those needs are you prepared to meet? Which of those needs are you well suited to meet? Has it happened by chance that you are well suited to meet those needs? Is it just haphazardly that you have come to be ready to meet some of the needs? In the body of Christ? That would be like saying God just happened to find Moses in Midian. Ready to deliver God's people. God just happened to find you. Here. At CRBC. Poised to meet some needs. On the contrary. Brothers and sisters. God has been shaping you. Forming you. Molding you. Until now that you might step up to meet some of the needs that perhaps just now are becoming apparent to you. So as you look around at the body of Christ and see there's a need here and there's a need there, you might say, I can't do this and I can't do that for whatever reason, but I can do this and I can do that. And it's because in God's providence, He has shaped me molded me, put me in certain circumstances where I am able to step up in these ways. See there the call of God. We ought to see God's sovereignty not only in matters of election, regeneration, justification, and so forth, but we ought also to see God's sovereignty in terms of these circumstances and events of our lives. 
viewing them as shapers so that we might effectively walk in the good works which He prepared beforehand for us to do. It was that way with Moses. It is that way with us and with all of God's people. And listen, as God prepared Moses for his life's work, as God prepares each of us for our life's work, God prepared Christ Jesus for his life's work. We read in John chapter 3 and verse 16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Who's the referent of the He? Who gave? He gave. Who? For God so loved the world that He gave. God gave. The incarnation was God's idea. God knew that His people needed a Savior. A certain kind of Savior. And God sent a Savior whom He fit for the task. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. And so Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We needed a substitute who is human, as Anselm argued some 800 years ago, roughly. We needed a substitute who was human so that he could be a just substitute for human sinners. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? Because they're not human. So they can't be substitutes for human sinners. Think of this then. It would be impossible for the blood of angels to take away sin. Why? Because they're not human. We needed a human substitute. And yet we needed one who was divine, Anselm also argued, in order that he might be able to withstand the weight of the fury of God. And so the God-man was given us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ Jesus, fit for His life's work. Prepared for it by the Father. Given from heaven, yet born of a woman. The only being in the universe, in existence, who could be our Savior, is the God-man, Christ Jesus. No animal could do it because of our own guilt and the need that we would die for our own sin. No other human could do it. Not even an angel could do it. God could slay all of the angels. And yet not one human sin could ever be atoned for in that. But God fit our Savior for His life's work. And all this 
is to say nothing of his conformity to the prophecies of old, of the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, etc., etc. We needed a Savior who was very specifically prepared to meet certain qualifications and conditions in order to be the fulfillment of prophecies and in order to be the Savior for human sin. And having been fit for the task, Christ Jesus came and lived obediently in the place of disobedient sinners, died substitutionarily, exchanging His righteousness for our unrighteousness and bearing our unrighteousness to the cross where the fury of God was poured upon Him. And He rose from the dead, having been perfectly fitted for His life's work and having accomplished His life's work, He rose from the dead when all was completed. And He ascended, having been successful in the work that He was given to do. And was it up in the air whether that work would have been successful? No, because He was perfectly fit for what He had been called to do. In every respect necessary, Christ Jesus was prepared by God for the role that He would undertake. To lead a new exodus from out of slavery to sin and death in that bondage to the glorious freedom of the sons of God. And so in His role as a mediator and as a rescuer, fit and prepared by God for the work that God had given him to do, Moses prefigures Christ. Just as God prepared Moses for his life's work, so God prepared Jesus for his life's work. And so, as we said earlier, he also prepares each and every one of us for the good works that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. God does not call the equipped, but equips the called. Don't act as if who you are is an accident. But instead, steward who you are as formed intentionally by God to serve as you're able within the body of Christ with the opportunities that are before you for God's glory and for the good of the people around you. You don't have to do every job in the body of Christ. You don't have to be your own savior. Jesus already did that. You don't necessarily have to be this or that or the other thing. But you have a role in the body of Christ. God fit and prepared Moses for his life's work. God fit and prepared Christ Jesus for his life's work. And God has fit, is fitting, and will continue to fit you for your life's work. So let us trust in Jesus who is fit for His life's work, and let us do our life's work.